You're listening to Seaside Book Club Discussions, bringing you the authors and their work. Come sit with host Donasia Furlow to discover and discuss. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Seaside Book Club Discussions. This episode is a special virtual book club installment. Today I'm here with Josh Guerrero. Josh Guerrero is a returned Peace Corps volunteer and the host and founder of the All Around Adventure podcast a show that shares amazing tales from afar and the all-important life lessons that go along with them. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, recently you had told me a little bit about your trip to the Gambia. What brought you there? Well, I'm not sure if I would call it a trip because it was a good while uh, that I was there. This was about about, goodness, almost seven years ago, and I was 2012, I moved out there to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer. And Peace Corps volunteers, they serve a two-year commitment. And I didn't necessarily choose West Africa to be stationed. It was more of a need sort of process. My bachelor's degree was in elementary education, and they had a need for education volunteers in that part of the world. So Peace Corps asked me, hey, we have some room for education volunteers in the Gambia. And when I was asked to go there, I'm like, where on earth is the Gambia? I have never even heard of the place before. Turned out it was just a very, very small country about the size of New Jersey. It's actually the smallest country on the entire African continent. And I was invited to go there. And that's where I spent two years of my life. Wow. And you also had mentioned that um, that you had read 50 books within the span of two years there. Yeah, that, that, yeah, because, well, quite frankly, you know, living in a developing country, well, when I say developing country, a lot of people would refer to that as, you know, a third world country, you know, if I wanted to put it in that terms. Well, quite frankly, there wasn't really much else to do. I lived in a rural village, just way, way out in the country, Um, my house that I lived in didn't have electricity or running water or a lot of those amenities. So you can say no internet, no smartphone. Um, And also, again, with this being a rural village, I couldn't go to the movies or I couldn't go out to a bar or nightclub or a really, really nice fancy restaurant (laughs) or anything like that. So so quite frankly, there wasn't really much else uh, to do. And reading was something that I've always enjoyed doing, but I never actually really did a lot of when I was living back stateside, obviously, because, you know, the hustle and bustle lifestyle that we have here in the U.S. And just being able to have a little bit of extra time on my hands there and also just as kind of to a degree as a a little bit of a coping strategy, which I'm sure we'll probably get into a little bit more in depth in this conversation. I really took reading uh, into consideration and that became a pretty regular part of my routine living there. Wow. Where were you getting the books? You know, you didn't have access to the internet. Like, what was your source? Well, thankfully, the Peace Corps had a couple libraries stationed in some of their buildings and outposts within the country. So you had a lot of previous volunteers who have been in the Gambia. Now, the Peace Corps has been operating in the Gambia at around the time I went for almost 50 years. And so a lot of volunteers have passed through the country and they would bring their own books and just donate them. And they would donate them. They'd So we'd go to the Peace Corps office. There would just be shelves just lined with so many books. And 
I just started grabbing some here and there. And then eventually my family, bless their hearts, sent me a Kindle. And of course, Kindles are known for a very long battery life, which was good because I didn't have electricity to charge the thing very often. And and so I was able to get a Kindle from my family. They sent me a couple of Kindle books that they got. And of course, I linked up with a few other volunteers who were also utilizing the Kindle method to obtain their books. I was able to get some files from them. And so it just you know worked out pretty good. And I, lo and behold, I've got myself a good extensive library and a lot of material to, to pull from. <laughs> On your site, you actually list all the books that you read within that time span. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what were some of your absolute favorites from that time? Well, there's uh, there, there's a few answers to that question. I, I obviously, as you probably saw, I dove into a couple of series and trilogies and, and books of that sort. I really enjoyed the Millennium Trilogy. Now, for some people who might not know exactly what I'm referring to, it's um, Stig Larsson's book, the Swedish author who had passed away um, before his books were released. And that's, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, you know, that trilogy. I really enjoyed That was a good thriller. Um, I really liked uh, Vince Flynn's uh, Mitch Rap series, which is kind of like a, a spy um, espionage type thriller. Um, I didn't mention this when you and I were connected, but I also served in the military. So I kind of take interest in stories uh, like those. Um, I also read uh, Bear Grylls's, uh book, Mud, Sweat and Tears, which was his autobiography. That was a very inspirational book. I read that in a couple of days because I really got into it and really got into uh, reading about his story. And I'd have to say my favorite standalone fiction novel would probably have to be Robert R. McCammon's book, The Wolf's Hour, which, again, is like a military spy type thriller with a little bit of a supernatural twist. Uh, The main character is a werewolf, but it's not like it's not like a supernatural story per se, where it's, you know, like how a lot of the like how werewolves are depicted in some of like the modern day YR style books as like werewolves versus vampires and things like that. Like, let's say, I guess, Twilight, for for instance, if we want to pull out an example, this was... um, it was just like the the main character was a werewolf, but again, it wasn't a supernatural thriller. It's just like part of his character, if that makes sense. Like they didn't really harp on the whole supernatural side of things. It was the the military undercover spy uh, type story. But I just thought that the way um, Robert McCammon depicted the werewolf in this particular book was very original. Like oftentimes werewolves are depicted as being these immortal creatures that have just gone throughout the centuries. But in this one, they're not where they actually, they, the, the main character can transform into a werewolf at will, but if he does, he starts to age as a wolf. So if he spends a year in wolf form and then changes back to human form, he would age like seven years um, as a human form. So I just thought that take was very original and very fresh. And I really got into it and just the way that the story unfolded, the development of the characters, and he, you know, meets a lot of unique characters, heroes and villains alike in the story. It was a pretty long read, but it was really well done. And I haven't read any other works from this particular author, but I don't know, something about that book just kind of really stood out to me. I remember my father had it when I was growing up and when I had looked through like the Kindle, uh, the list of Kindle files that I got from one of the volunteers and I saw that book, I recognized it right away. And so I, I picked it up and really good story. So, so I'd have to say, yes, some of the trilogies that I've read that standalone novel 
And then um, I didn't really get too much into the nonfiction with like the exception of I mentioned Bear Grylls' autobiography and maybe a couple others uh, here and there. But yeah, I'd say overall, like uh, just, I guess, relatively short, <laughs> short, short answer to your question. Th- those are what come to mind right offhand. Yeah, it's real interesting that that book that you said that your dad read that was right in your home library, it took you to go several miles away to connect with that book. But what was awesome to me is like, you're right, it's a very fresh take on, you know, the whole werewolf situation. So it's like, it's not romanticized. It's pretty much like, I would assume if it ages him, it has to be out of necessity. Like, I'm going to transform. Yeah, I don't have to wait until the full moon to go through this whole emotional, you know, turmoil of having to hide in a cave. Like, I'm doing this because I need to. But this is this is the risk I run whenever I do it. Yeah, it it seemed like it was very much a curse where, again, other depictions of the werewolf where, yeah, it's like, again, like you said, they're kind of, I don't know if glorified is the right word or, or, you know, you said romanticized. I think that would be a fitting word. But in this one, it was very much more like a curse. And there's a couple of backstories here and there where it talks about like other people have changed in the werewolves. And some of them, you know, I don't want to spoil the book too much, but a lot of people who and who undergo a transformation in this story, they actually die before they complete the the transformation because it's, like I said, it's a curse. It's a very kind of dark and horrible thing to uh, ex- for them to experience. So again, just a really fresh and original take. And this, was, this book was actually written back in the 80s, I think. And I'm not sure why this type of, I guess, you know, again, werewolf persona hasn't really kind of made it out into some of those more mainstream areas. I just thought it was really well done. You mentioned Bear Gorillas, and you know, I'm going to go right back to it because it seems to be so on brand for you and your website, your podcast, you know, about being an adventurer. What, you know, what were some of the things that you really enjoyed about Bear Gorillas' autobiography? And what, what connections did you make to your own journey? Well, I think I really kind of took away the lesson of perseverance just because some of the trials and tribulations that Bear Grylls had to undertake in his life as I was reading in this story, um, like for one, he was going through uh, British SAS selection. Now, for those who might not know what that is, it's the Special Air Service. You know, it's their special forces and some of the best in the world, some of the most grueling training on the planet when it comes to military selection. And so he was talking about going through that and how hard it was. And then shortly thereafter, he suffered a parachuting accident and he broke his back and he wasn't sure if he was going to walk again. But then about a year and a half after he recovered from that incident, he went to the summit of Mount Everest. And then so I think about just the perseverance and that drive to continue on that he highlighted so much in the book. I think that really helped me a lot in what I was facing while living in West Africa, again, in this rural village, just way out there in the country. Because for one, it was really hot all the time. It was about 107 degrees on most days. I didn't have a lot of these modern amenities that I was so used to. I had to get used to just a very basic lifestyle. I had to work to collect water. I had to filter the water to make sure it was safe to drink. I was out of connection with like fellow Americans. I'm the only American in this village. Um, a lot of the other volunteers are scattered throughout the country in their own villages. It was difficult for me to contact like my family back home since I didn't have internet access. And it was just so many challenges that I had to face while I was there. And this went on for two years too. 
And, you know, in hindsight, you know, it was over with a snap of the fingers, but while I was in it, it took took an eternity. And so I just think just kind of just hearing a story of like what Bear Grylls had endured and just the mindset that he had just to overcome those trials just sort of kind of told me, well, goodness, I mean, if he broke his back and wasn't sure if he was going to walk again and then went to the summit of uh, Mount Everest, I don't know, that kind of seem, seems like what I'm doing right now to be a little bit of a cakewalk. <laughs> so so I, um, so that kind of really helped just put things in perspective for me so that way I can kind of drive on and really just try to complete you know, my service to the best of my ability. You mentioned also having a host family and children that were living in the home with you. Now, what was their reaction to you, the culture clash? Had they had any interaction with, you know, American individuals prior to this, as well as, you know, your habit of, you know, nose in a book? I had a little bit of a separate house from where the rest of my host family lived. We, we shared the same compound, but I actually had like my own little square hut that was separated fr- um, from them. Uh, so not too often they would actually see me read. There would be a couple of times where maybe I would come out and just kind of sit with them or just all relax and doing our own thing. And I'll bring out my Kindle or something like that. And it was kind of interesting for them because I actually was, in fact, the first Peace Corps volunteer that had uh, lived in this particular village. So I would imagine most of them probably have never seen a foreigner uh, before. And it was kind of, let's see, how, how, do, how do I want to phrase this? Uh, reading was not entirely prominent there. Like it wasn't something that was like overly like emphasized. So I would say that maybe they did find it a little bit strange when they would see me reading or especially like, again, if I was outside sitting with them and I was just so dialed into the story that I, that I was reading, they're just kind of thinking, what is he doing? You know, it's just, he's like, he's awfully quiet. And because typically Gambians, they're, they're very social, they're very interactive. So just to kind of see me, sort of off by myself, just, you know, with, with, yeah, like you said, looking down at this screen. I mean, at, of course, the Kindle is not exactly a book, so it even made it even more confusing for them, I'm sure. But, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting uh, reaction. But ev- eventually I did try to get like some of uh, my younger host siblings involved with, you know, just like some children's books that I might have picked up uh, here and there. So, so yeah, it was kind of a little bit of an interesting uh, cultural uh, exchange. It's so common for us to have our head down in our phones, Kindles, all kinds of electronic devices, and to go to somewhere where they're encouraged and they don't know anything else but to interact face-to-face all day. And here you are, kind of doing what you know, what's normal for you. And all they're seeing is for you to spend, you know, sometimes 30 minutes at a time or more, just head bent looking down into the screen. Yeah, that was actually kind of a pretty cool dynamic, I I, I thought, was just... uh, I would say that they were fortunate to not have this technology um, at, like readily available to them. I think there were there were like smartphones out there, but even then they weren't very he- heavily used uh, by some of the villagers because you, you know they really did just value that face to face interaction. And there was a couple of times where some my family members back home they would think like, "How many kids do you have there? Like, we want to send over like." all kinds of toys and electronics and, and stuff like that. And I'm thinking bless, you know, bless their hearts for thinking of like my host family that way. But I actually would just, you know, reply back to them politely and say, 
you know, please don't send anything because, you know, just the purity that I kind of witnessed with just the villagers and again, my host family where the kids in my host family would just get hours and hours of enjoyment with taking a bicycle tire and just wheeling it with like a stick, like hitting it with a stick and getting it to roll across the compound. They would do that for hours and just have the time of their lives. And I just felt like if I tried to bring in all these toys that obviously many American children would find entertaining and try to, I guess, maybe for lack of better terms, impose those same kind of fun standards. And I put that in quotations on these kids. I think I probably would have ruined like the purity of what I was witnessing and cause they probably wouldn't know what to do with the toys and, and, and stuff like that. So it was really cool. Yes. To see that just that, you know, technology hasn't really, you know, woven its way in. Cause like, as you, you have alluded to is that we're so connected with technology but at the same time, we couldn't be more further apart because, you know, you'll go to like a restaurant and, you know, you see a couple out on a date. Both of them are looking down at their phones or, you know, one is trying to engage the other, but the other one's, you know, on their phone. And I'm thinking, goodness gracious, it's like <laughs> you're right next to, you know, this really cool looking person <laughs> and you're not you're not engaging. So it's uh, it was really cool. Yes, just to be just to be there and just to see how that social interaction worked and that, you know, technology hasn't quite woven its way into, you know, the fiber of this culture. That is definitely something that I think that we can all learn from. And just the fascination of seeing a kid just getting so much enjoyment out of chasing a stick around, well, a wheel around with a stick, you know, and now we have like two-year-olds and they know how to get into all the apps, they're downloading stuff you know, where we are. And it's a blessing and a curse. Like, yes, they're taking technology in. But at the same time, I feel like we miss so much of that. Like, I'm so glad that I still got a little piece of that, Um, being able to make a story up in your mind, play with a toy and just be given a doll or an action figure and have hours of fun with it because you had to do the work. Nothing is done for you now. Like, everything is done for you. They tell you what to think, what to do what this character's backstory is all the time. And then it's like, you just go with that. You just watch TV. You just turn, give your kid the tablet and just let them sit down with it. And that's it. Right. <laughs> so in your journal, and I found it so great that you did a journal on your experience. And I love that you didn't use flowery language. Like a lot of the time people put, I guess, kind of some kind of pressure on people who, who go to do mission work of any kind um and saying you know this was beautiful i learned so much and yeah in hindsight you could have learned so much you went home and you're just kind of like that was kind of nice but while you're there you said you know it was hot there was a lot of things going on that was really annoying to me and i had to really push through it because i'm accustomed to certain things like you you have to admit i'm accustomed to certain things it was nothing for them they were home you were not the temperature was nothing to them. That's what they were born into. They know that. And then for you to be kind of in the middle of that and doing that journal work and looking inward, what are some of the key things that you learned on that trip about yourself? Well, in, in regards to journaling while I was there, it was certainly something that I felt like I had to do sort of as a way to, it was another one of the coping mechanisms, I guess I would say that I sort of picked up because again, being just out in this village with limited contact to, 
you know, fellow Americans or fellow Peace Corps volunteers, I think kind of writing in my journal was, I guess I would say to a degree, kind of a, a way of venting, hence why you saw in my journal entry that, you know, I'm kind of, compl- I, you've, you, I was more or less complaining about a lot of stuff and, you know, just really having like, you know, some bad days because, I would say that I felt the entire range of the emotional spectrum, everything from complete joy all the way down to complete and utter despair. Like I felt it all. And so sometimes journaling for me was just kind of that outlet at the time where I just really just had to just get everything out of my head and just get it on paper because if you let that stuff rattle up in your brain, it's just going to drive you crazy. You're going to, it's going to affect your mental health, which will ultimately affect, affect your physical health, you know, trouble sleeping and just, you know, so on and so forth. It just leads to a downward spiral. But I think getting them out on paper was kind of a way to just, again, just keep them from rattling around. And I could literally just keep my thoughts, fears, feelings, whatever it was that I was facing in line, you know, quite literally, because I'm just writing it out uh, on, on, a, on a journal page. So so I think that was probably one of the big lessons that, I, that I've learned was just really trying to find ways to do a little bit of sublimation. Now, of course, sublimation meaning that I find a socially acceptable way to, you know, relieve stress, you know, um, you know, obviously, I also did a lot of physical like fitness training, which actually helped quite a bit. And then of course, you know, we talked, we'd been talking about reading. That was one of my subliminal activities and journaling was also one of those uh, in it as well. And I don't, I wouldn't say like I had a consistent journaling schedule. Like it wasn't like once, like every other day, but there was just like a couple of moments where I'm like, all right, come here (laughs) and just start writing down because, you know, something would happen or it's just everything was just building up. And then I just had to just, you know, purge it all and just get it on paper. So I think that's really where journaling kind of became a bit of a handy tool when it came to just, you know, kind of keeping myself, you know, I guess I'll say sane to a degree (laughs) while I was there. Do you continue to journal now or? Not so much. Not quite so much. I mean, obviously not within like the sense that you and I were just talking about, but obviously, you know, I have my blog and I have my podcast, which is obviously um, a different format to utilize a little bit more um, as a form of self-expression as well. And every now and then you might hear me kind of get into that sort of uh, thing where I'm just kind of talking about stuff that's going on and Ultimately, uh, and of course, obviously, to make it valuable to the listeners, I got to, you know, include something that's going to be beneficial for them, of course. But I think more or less, it's just, I still do it, but in a much different format of, you know, obviously blogging and podcasting and kind of putting my thoughts out that way. Yeah. Now we're heading into the holidays and you actually spent the holidays there in the Gambia. What was it like spending Christmas abroad so very far from home? Well, around this time, it was fairly easy for me um, because this wasn't the first time that I had spent Christmas away from home, away from family. Um, you know, I had mentioned early on that I was in the military. Um, I was in the Marine Corps. And, you know, I did have a year where, you know, I didn't make it home to, to see my family. And I think it's probably happened one other time before uh, going to the Gambia. So it wasn't a new thing for me. Um I mean, but at the same time, though, still, it, it was kind of tough. You know, there's a lot of changes that were going on uh, back home. You know, my siblings back home, they were getting into committed relationships. So now we had, you know, I had like in-laws that were now part of the family who were, we were incorporating to our 
Christmas tradition. So I was kind of missing out on that. But obviously, this was the time where a lot of volunteers, they would congregate at this point to celebrate together because, of course, it would be kind of hard for one of us just to remain in our villages because that was also another thing that to um, a lot of like uh, holidays, Christmas especially, weren't celebrated in the Gambia because Gambia is predominantly a Muslim country, so they wouldn't celebrate Christmas. Therefore, you know, us volunteers, we had to find a way to just kind of just get together and celebrate ourselves. And we would do that. We would get together. We would all fan out and get supplies to, you know, come back and make a big feast to sit around and, and share with one another. And it was, we would try to get each other gifts, which usually would just involve uh, either something that we would get in village or if like some volunteers would get care packages from back home and just like kind of divvy them out to some volunteers, which would usually just be something as simple as like, here, here's a cliff bar whenever you need it. Or here, I made you a card out of construction paper that I brought with me so I can do my arts and crafts and stuff, and stuff like that. So it was a very, a very simple holiday, but it was, it was a really good feeling. And then of course, some people would have like uh like movies on their computers or something like that. We would watch maybe like a Christmas movie. Um, seems like a lot of volunteers were a fan of that movie Love Actually, which is the first time I've ever watched that. So that's one of those quintessential, you know, Christmas movies from the early 2000s that uh, some of the volunteers have. So it was a really good time. And it was a really good feeling at that point, again, just, you know, being with the other volunteers and just you know, finding our way to celebrate Christmas as, as much as uh, we can and, you know, kind of just having, you know, a family away from the family, if you will. And speaking of family here, um, I noticed that you did mention something that was quite difficult for you with your grandfather having passed away while you were away. You know, what insight did you gain from that experience? Like, what was that like? Well, that was pretty hard, especially because this happened pretty early on, like within my service. I'd say probably within like the first I want to say is the first three to four months of actually being in the Gambia is when I started hearing from my mom saying that, you know, he was basically, um, you know, he was on his way to, you know, move on up to heaven. And uh, so it was pretty hard. And I had contemplated uh, coming back, you know, to maybe be with family around that time. But, you know, I wouldn't say I, I wasn't super duper close to my grandfather, mostly because you know, we had, a, I have a really large uh, extended family. Uh, this is going to be kind of funny, but my mother, um, which is uh, my, my, which is the grandfather I'm referring to, it, it's, uh, it's her father, you know, uh, she had uh, 14 siblings. So huge family, which means lots of first cousins on my mom's side. So a lot of grandchildren for my, for my grandfather to have to keep track of. So, so I would, so I haven't really built like, let's say a very close relationship with him growing up, just because, again, I was just one of so many. But, you know, he would ask about me. Um, you know, he would he catch wind of certain things that I was doing, you know, in my life, you know, again, with the military. And, you know, if whenever I would see him, he would ask me about, you know, those sort of things. And I guess he would ask my mom about how I was doing out in Africa. And, you know, I was able to talk to him in the hospital. And I was just really, really glad that, the last conversation I had with him that I was able to tell him that I loved him. And, and then it wasn't shortly thereafter where, you know, I got, got the word from my mom that he passed peacefully, you know, at home surrounded by loved ones. And obviously I was just thankful that, you know, it was that way for him. I mean, obviously that's like 
ultimately the best you could really wish for someone, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he was, um, on the family farm, the farm that he had tended for years and, uh, and that, and that's, that's where he was. And so it was, uh, it, it was tough, but, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of glad that like, uh, you know, I was able to, you know, give him a, a good farewell and, you know, wish him, wish him well as he, you know, moved on to the next journey. And I'm glad that, it, uh, you know, his time on this earth and ended well too. And I just kind of also believe that, I knew that maybe one of the reasons why I didn't go home, because I felt like he would probably would have wanted me to press on. Like, I think deep down, he knew what it was that I was doing and what it was that I was striving to achieve there in the Gambia. So I'm sure he would have wanted me to to carry on and, you know, to keep trying to be of service to the people that I was there to serve. So, so as tough as it was, it was, um, it, it was also, I think, a good experience. And, a bit of a motivating and, ins- and inspirational experience um, as well, uh, especially again being so early on into my service and knowing I still had a long road ahead of me as I was uh, getting ready to continue on with my service. There was definitely so many things that you know you described having gone through, and you know the very real human experience of wondering: Is this worth it? What am I missing out on? There's so much going on that seems worlds away. You know, but making the commitment to these people. Uh, do you feel like you accomplished your mission there and you, you know, got done all that you set out to do? Well, it's hard to say if I did completely. Like, I think going in there, I didn't have like a huge amount of goals as to what it was that I wanted to like accomplish. Like, I didn't have like a grandiose plan. What my job there entailed, I was a teacher trainer. So, Basically, what that it's exactly how it sounds, right? I would just go with some of the teachers that worked in the school in my village. I would try to teach them various classroom management uh, strategies and teaching methods and things of that sort. And some of the some of the teachers were very receptive to some of the things that I had to share, but others weren't like quite so much. Like they were pretty resistant to change. So, so obviously, I didn't really have much influence on them. I. It was kind of cool, though, when I would see uh, some of the teachers utilize some of the techniques and strategies that I shared with them and actually have them work, like actually like work effectively when they implemented them into their classroom. But I'd have to say my biggest successes, though, actually came outside of the school and stuff that I tried to do within uh, my host family. And one of them in particular was uh, helping them get mosquito nets because malaria is a danger in this part of the world, uh, for sure. And of course, Peace Corps had issued me um, like malaria prophylaxis, so I wouldn't get infected. But obviously, that same luxury could not be afforded to my host family um, in, in any way. So it had to be mosquito nets. But I just noticed that about a year into my service, and I don't know why it took me so long to notice, but they didn't have any mosquito nets like at all. And they got young kids. And so I was kind of, you know, worried for for their safety. I've been with them this long and, you know, they welcomed me as one of their own. So I had a conversation with my host father and I was telling him about malaria and some of the dangers of malaria. Now for the Gambians, at least my host family, it's probably not everyone in the country, but within my family and the other villagers, they kind of viewed malaria as kind of like a catch-all term for just being sick in general. They didn't actually 
classify it as this distinct disease that has its own, you know, symptoms and, and things like that. It's just, you know, if you have a runny nose, you got malaria, you got a cough, you got malaria. But then I would tell them that no, mo- malaria is a disease that can kill people. And it's, uh, it's the mosquitoes when they bite you, they can, they can give you malaria. And the look on my host father's face was just, I, I could just tell that he was in a little bit of shock and awe all of a sudden. And so it was probably like less than a week later, he actually took it upon himself to get every single bed in his uh, family's home, a mosquito net. And I just thought that was so amazing. And then also what he did, uh, I had a baby host sister. Uh, her name was Isa too. She was born about three or four months after I had arrived. And what he got her was this mosquito net that was kind of shaped like a crock pot lid. So they would just lay her on the bed and then just cover her with this mosquito net crock pot looking thing. It was, it was so good, but that just absolutely warmed my heart. And I think that was probably, that would have to be for me personally, my, my greatest accomplishment, especially with just, um, ISA too, because obviously, you know, I was, in the village when she was born, I kind of got to see her like grow up a little bit. Like by the time I had left, she had started walking and it was just, you know, really cool. So just to kind of see that, you know, she had that protection and that she was safe. It's like, if I can't get the teachers in my school to, you know, implement the things I did, then so be it. But that baby girl's got a mosquito net and that was good enough for me. So would I say I accomplished the mission I set out there for? Probably not. But did I achieve great amount of success while I was there? Absolutely. I find it absolutely shocking and still fascinating at the same time that they weren't aware of malaria and what those mosquitoes could do. And they were right there in the village with them and they didn't know. <laughs> you know, you probably educated so many people without knowing just by having that conversation because he told a friend who told a friend and they're like, whoa, we have to get these nets. We didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I felt pretty good about is that, I mean, obviously I didn't have to like lift a finger logistically speaking. I didn't have to shuffle out any money to get nets. I didn't have to do any fundraising. I didn't have to, you know, pay this person off to get these for my family. It's just all I simply had was a conversation. And like you said, I would say for sure that considering how tight knit um, the villagers are socially, that once, you know, they see my host father taking this initiative to protect his family, no doubt the other villagers would have, you know, saw like saw his example and maybe like would follow Sue uh, as well. So, so I'm hoping, yes, like uh, maybe that's like what it ha- had happened is just, just a simple exchange that, you know, hopefully created that ripple effect. And and if that's how it turned out, that would be just, just awesome. And again, a, a huge success for me. Yeah. It's the small things because you probably saved some lives and they didn't even know that it was the mosquitoes flying around that was doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's mind blowing that a little bit of information goes a long way. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> So have you been able to communicate with your host family since you left? Um, unfortunately, not very much. Um, I mean, obviously, with the the technological difficulties that we have, um, I was able to hear from one of my older host brothers, who is a little bit of a traveler. He uh, 
you know, we'll go to like other places in the country that are a little bit more, I guess I'll say, you know, upscale. And I put upscale in quotations where he can get, you know, access to like steady internet. So he would go there and make like a Facebook page and like reach out to me and, and things like that. But as far as like, you know, other means of contact, phone calls, or, and I certainly haven't been back to the country uh, yet. It's, it's really hard to get to. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I unfortunately I kind of have sort of lost touch a little bit with, uh, with my host family. You know what? Those are the challenges, but I feel that you did touch lives. You definitely did touch lives. Uh, you know, you have this podcast episode that I think I mentioned to you that I found so intriguing where you actually, you know, you kind of have a guide on dealing with individuals of different cultures. Mm-hmm. And did you formulate that list from your experience there or was it basically in travels before that? I think a good amount of it came from my experience in the Gambia, especially because just there were so many observable differences with myself and uh, the, the the culture that I was living with. And, and what I mean by observable differences, obviously what you can see on the surface, you know, is just, you know, everyone in my village was black and, you know, I'm Hispanic. Everyone there was, um, was a Muslim and I'm, I was raised Catholic and they all spoke a different language uh, than I did too. So you definitely had a lot of um, observable differences, but once I was spending more time with the family and I was, you know, trying to, you know, speak the language, you know, in the core of things, there really wasn't much different. I mean, they all looked forward to lunchtime, just like how, how I would do. So, um, they would be like outside, like at night, sometimes you'd see like, um, s- some of the villagers would just be sitting around like a small little boom box listening to music. I mean, I did that with my friends, uh, growing up too. Like I actually grew up with boombox CD players and stuff like that. So, you know, someone would bring in like a, a good CD and we would just sit around and, and listen to it. And so there was just really like so many similarities that I, I had uh, just observed. And, and of course, you know, my host father is really trying to exemplify what it means to be, you know, uh, one of the leaders of his family. You know, he's trying to look out for um, his wives. And I say wives because polygamous marriages were a thing in the Gambia. So he had two wives and, you know, obviously trying to make sure that the kids were, you know, doing their studies and contributing and, you know, doing their chores. So, and then of course they're trying to help their neighbors as best as possible. And, you know, and then everyone's trying to contribute just for like the better good of the village and and things like that. So, so yes, you had these observable differences. Um, like, like I say, especially when I just first arrived in the, in the village, obviously, but once you look past that though, there wasn't really, you know, much difference. It's just, you know, we all, we all like our stuff. We all, um, you know, want to just live happily and do the best we can. So, so I think um, a lot of the posts that, uh, or a lot of the insight within uh, the episode that you're referring to, certainly came from that experience, but also just from many other travelers that I've uh, gotten to talk to along the way as well. That was one of the common denominators when I asked my podcast guests about life lessons. That's one of the things that that they bring up too, and it's something that they really want to share because. You know, especially, you know, here in the U.S. where, 
you know, there's just maybe a small percentage of our population that has passports and who's even like traveled abroad. And they only look through other parts of the world through the lens of like, you know, mainstream media or social media, you know, they kind of have a little bit of a narrow view on different cultures like around the world. And, you know, this can lead to, you know, just judgments and uh, also, um, again, just kind of like a narrow perspective on like uh, those cultures and, you know, they may, um, they, they just won't get like the whole picture. And they, like I said, they'll have a lot of preconceived notions just based on little information. So that's one thing I kind of really liked about uh, having that experience is to come home with a new perspective and being able to share that with others. And then also kind of seeing how that perspective was brought on with other world travelers too, and what they witnessed when, themselves with interacting with um, other cultures, not just cultures within Africa, but, you know, in say South America, Asia, or even, you know, like rural parts of Europe too, that have their own unique cultures. And even here in the U.S., uh, we have like unique cultures wherever you might be in the country. You know, I've definitely noticed like, certain things that might've been a little bit different. Like, you know, I, I live in Florida now and there are certain differences I can see when compared to where I'm from in Michigan. So it's just, it's just really, really kind of cool just to, again, have that experience, gain that perspective and being able to share that sort of perspective with others as well. Said, what projects are you working on now? Well, just uh, carrying on uh, with uh, the podcast. Um, I am working on something really, really big. Um, I unfortunately I can't um, divulge too many details because um, I'm kind of waiting on a big announcement uh, towards the beginning of uh, next year. All I can say is that this will probably be one of the most epic and also one of the most physically challenging things that I've ever done. I've obviously I've overcome many physical challenges uh, in the past. You know, Marine Corps boot camp. I've ran a marathon. I've done Tough Mudder. I just did a Spartan race in Lake Tahoe at high elevation. I fought in a cage as an MMA fighter before, but but what I'm about to do is going to be the most physically daunting um, ever. So I'll just say, I guess, stay tuned for that <laughs> for, for more details. Um, I, I can't give away uh, the big surprise um, just yet. But, you know, besides that, I'm just uh, continuing on with uh, the podcast, making sure I'm staying consistent with releasing on a weekly basis because consistency is key with, uh, you know, this, uh, um, I'm not, I don't know if I'd say line of work just yet because I haven't monet, um, come to monetization uh, phase of my podcast yet, but it's uh, consistency is uh, key to growth, I will say. So, but yeah, I think that's just um, kind of what I'm doing for the time being. Yeah. Sounds good. And we look forward to updates as well as continued content on your podcast and other platforms that you do uh, post content on. Uh, where can listeners find information on you, your podcast and your adventures? Well, they can always go to my website at allaroundadventure.com. Um, you can find me on uh, social media. I am on Facebook and Instagram at All Around Adventure. Just one word, no dashes. I'm also on Twitter at All Around Advent. I couldn't quite fit the URE at the end there because Twitter doesn't allow for a very long username. So just All Around Advent there. And then they can find the podcast on whatever their favorite uh, podcasting uh, platform is, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, Stitcher. Uh, it's there uh, as well to, to, so they can feel free to to look that up and and also I definitely encourage everyone to check out my website it's uh, 
recently been revamped, has a whole new facelift. I think it looks uh, really good. I think it's uh, really clean, really professional. And so, um, and then they can, you know, listen to pod uh, to all the episodes right from there if they so choose. And so, yeah, by all means, uh, feel free to reach out or if anyone, you know, needs, you know, help with anything, if they want to, you know, email me topics or anything that they might want to, you know, hear about, learn about, or maybe if they're struggling with something in realms of uh, self-development that they'd like me to talk about, or maybe share some stories to, to draw upon some lessons from, I would be more than, more than happy to. So by all means, uh, feel free to reach out. I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show for this installment of Virtual Book Club. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for having me. I had a lot of fun. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd like to thank you listeners as well for tuning in. This has been another episode of Seaside Book Club Discussions, and this is your host, Don Asia Furlow, signing out. Remember, listeners, keep reading.